So tonight I'm going to be talking about equanimity, the last of the Brahma-viharas. And, you know, this, um, uh, this creation, this creative form that we've been engaged with, you know, the sort of the, the preface of and the foundation of mindfulness going into um, the juiciness of loving-kindness and the depth of compassion and the, the peak sort of experience of joy. Equanimity can kind of feel like an anticlimax. You know, sort of, this is the last night of the retreat, you're kind of inclined outside the retreat already, the four of us are kind of lame ducks. You're going to have, not have to deal with us <laughs> anymore. I hope to sort of give some energy and some um, power to this aspect of equanimity, which is really the culmination of the Brahma-viharas in a way. One of the images of awakening or enlightenment and whatever word that we place to it, but one of the, the classic images is that it's the far shore. It's the far shore. And so if that has any resonance to you, what's the ocean? What, what's between us and the far shore? And I think that all of us have experienced that when we actually sit on the cushion and begin to watch our life. We see the ups and downs, the twists and the turns. We see the, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That actually is the ocean of our experience. That this is the, this is the area we navigate in order to get to that far shore. And in going back and forth between the joys and the sorrows, I'm reminded that this is the template that the Buddha offered to us through his lived experience, that he, his life too was this life of extremes. You know, that, that before he went, um, went forth, um, that he lived this extreme life of luxury with every need that was provided in these um, three different palaces, one for each season of the year. And that um, his family provided every single uh, need for every single sensual desire. And when he went forth, when when he was called beyond the life that was currently known, he actually went to the opposite extreme of giving up all of that into this extreme asceticism for, for almost six years. Searching for this path that he eventually came to be called the middle path. Because it's actually, it's actually in experiencing the extremes that we find the middle ground. And so as we sit on our cushion, we take those steps of the Buddha's path towards that Bodhi tree. Every time you sit on the cushion, you sit underneath that Bodhi tree, experiencing 
the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, the extremes of our life. And whether we have an explicit practice of equanimity, equanimity is practicing us in the container of this experience. And the invitation has been to use all of this container, the invitations that have been given, the talks, the practices, the meditations, the support from each other as a community, to hold all of our experiences, to hold all of your experiences, whether they've been sublime or whether they've been down. To live all of your life as it arises moment to moment. And so, again, that image of the far shore, one of the images of equanimity is uh, riding the waves of the ocean. The waves being the ups and downs, and, and you've discussed them in both the question and answer session in the, in the room, but also in your individual meetings. And just like this ocean that has all of its waves, and sometimes it's absolutely still, but even if there's a tsunami that's happening, that the ocean is so much more than that single wave. And you are so much more than any joy or any sorrow that you experience. That there is a life that includes all of that and is also beyond that. That your life is so much more than just the waves. And so can we learn how to surf? Can we learn how to navigate the waves, whether we're experiencing the sleepiness, the lust for sensual desires, the restlessness, the doubt, all of these hindrances that we've been talking about for the past week. So upeka is the Pali word for equanimity. And I've heard several different translations, all of which sort of point in in this direction of, um, of the ocean. And um, so some of those definitions are to look at and perceive patiently. Another definition is an evenness of mind, a mind that can actually hold all of your experience. And that can have some balance to it. So that even though you know, your experience, your life is going back and forth between these extremes. We're sort of riding, just like learning how to ride a bicycle. We go in one direction and we compensate and go in another direction. And sometimes we fall off. In fact, is when we're learning how to ride that bicycle, we are falling off. And then we get back on and try again. And eventually, Even a racing cyclist in the flow of his his, um, uh, cycling is always compensating through micro-movements. Balance 
is a dynamic activity. You're always falling off. You're just catching yourself faster. And this is, this is what we learn how to do over and over again. Jesse Jackson said, you may not be responsible for getting knocked down, but you are certainly responsible for getting back up. That is the coming back to balance. The evenness of mind, the getting back on the bicycle. A practitioner wrote to me, I was in Oklahoma City not long after the federal building bombing. We were driven around the bombed out building with, by one of the rescue workers. She told us many heartbreaking stories, some sad, some inspiring. She also mentioned that the dogs they used for sniffing out survivors and the dead had to be taken off site every two hours and played with by their handlers. Otherwise, the dogs would become extremely depressed. Playtime was a way to regain their balance and just be dogs again. Even dogs need this balance. Life needs this balance. And the balance is really supported by this practice of seeing things as they are without needing them to be any different. This attitude of non-reactivity, of not needing to manipulate your experience, I'll say over and over again, is not no activity. The non-reactivity is not the same as passivity. The non-reactivity is very active. It's a spacious stillness that allows us to be fully present. It supports the mindfulness practice of just meeting the moment very gently for what it is. And the phrases are, have a slightly different um, tonality than the phrases of metta, karuna, and mudita. So some of the phrases can be I care deeply and cannot control the outcome. This life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. Things have come to be just as they are. This moment has come to be just as it is. (coughs) It's a full acknowledgement of what is occurring in this moment without it needing to be different, without it pushing it away because we don't like it or wanting more of it because it's pleasant. So just as the other Brahma-Vaharas have near and far opposites, 
the near opposite, that which looks like equanimity, is something that I feel to be a contagion in this modern world. That it is so insidious and subtle that it affects all of us. And that is the response of apathy and indifference. The impulse towards a superior, inferior stance or attitude And there is such an emblematic word, I've said this before, that expresses this indifference. And that's why I say it's so insidious that my mother uses it. What is that word? Whatever. (laughs) Say it with the intonation. Whatever. (laughs) And what does that mean to you? To say that. And to have that such a part of our lexicon. So there is this urban dictionary, you know, sort of online that is that is au courant, that is that is the language of you know people who are hip these days. <laughs> I don't know what that means because I'm not, but so I looked up whatever. And uh, the first definition was a no-brainer. It was, I don't care. That's the indifference. The second definition was, nothing you say or do could make you matter to me. The third definition was, I'm actually upset you are stealing my air. (laughs) Hello? This is, this is not equanimity when you push it away. There's a distinction between this kind of the separation of detachment and the experience of non-attachment. One is fully separate and the other is fully engaged. So we think sometimes when we're non-attached that we can't care. But if we pay attention, we actually care deeply to see the truth and to accept the things that we cannot change, the courage to change the things that we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That may be the serenity prayer but that is also the spaciousness of equanimity. Equanimous action emerges from wisdom and kindness, that that wisdom and kindness of non-reactivity, to see what is true, to see what is wise, to see what is beneficial, and then taking that action that supports all of those intentions. The source of non-reactivity is wisdom and compassion. The source of indifference is aversion. It is also different, this non-reactivity, from neutrality. Because neutrality is often 
driven by delusion or ignorance, not knowing, not taking the effort to be curious or um, look for the wise or beneficial solution. The traditional far opposite of equanimity is this reactivity, this reactivity to extremes that we've been talking about. So I want to explore a little bit, since the reactivity is the, is the conditioned nature, we know it really well. I want to explore what is the nature of this um, attitude of non-reactivity. And it is um, one of the deepest practices that support this is what Gina offered this morning around the practice of Vedana about the practice of exploring the feeling tone of each experience that arises, whether that feeling tone is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Because as as we have said over and over again, we constantly, without awareness, are manipulating our experience based on one of these three experiences. And it is said that every single experience that you have in life without exception, has only one of those three feeling tones, which can change over time. But in that moment, there's only one feeling tone. And can you be aware of it? Another way of, of, of languaging the um, pleasant, unpleasant is the eight worldly winds that, all of, that, that swirl around all of our lives the winds of pleasure and pain, the winds of fame and disrepute, the the winds of gain and loss, and the winds of praise and blame. So you can feel in in those pairs, the pairing of pleasant, unpleasant in different aspects of our lives. And this is true no matter who we are. So just using, you know, this experience that I'm, that I'm living in this moment in the, in the seat that I've taken as a Dharma teacher, you know, there are people who like my talks and there are people who don't like my talks. And that's okay that they don't like my talks, sometimes. <laughs> and when they don't, when, when, when it's not okay for me, I suffer. These worldly winds sort of blow through all of our lives. And can we hold it it with some spaciousness? This aspect of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral also occurs in the most intense um, states that that arise. So I really want to talk about the the nuances of of, um, this practice in order so that you can hold all of the experiences. So for example, exploring Vedana in the intense emotions of uh, grief or loss or even rage. What is pleasant or un... We have an idea that grief, loss, rage are unpleasant. Is that the true nature of your experience? 
And as you parse the physical sensations of anger, let's say, you know, the stinging, the pulling, the heat, the, the vibration, the, um, the tension. I don't know about you, but I have found pleasant sensations within that experience that I call anger. And when I'm not conscious of those pleasant sensations, the conditioning will want more of those experiences because they're pleasant. And I will begin to feed the anger, whether I think it will actually lead to happiness or not. All of us have had that, that experience of righteousness. You know, what is that? That's a pleasant feeling. Is that an experience that will actually lead to less suffering? Only you can determine that with awareness in that moment. The Buddha said, where there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is just not possible. So this practice of Vedana is so important for us to deepen our our experience with. And really, our culture does not support it that very well. As, as, you know, as we've said, the, the larger culture sensationalizes and actually cultivates our attachment to extremes. There, I've said that, you know, uh, one uh, shopping season, there was this banner across a store in San Francisco that said, um, uh, moderation kills the spirit. What an advertising message for us spiritually. And beyond the pleasant and unpleasant is that space of neutrality of not being pleasant or unpleasant that we so often miss. Equanimity actually is inviting us to live out the full range of our life, including the places that don't have strong sensations to them. When things are in the middle, when things actually have the potential of being contented, of being just fine. Like people or dogs, each day is unique and has its own personality quirks, which can easily be seen if you look closely. But there are so few days as compared to people, not to mention dogs, that it would be surprising if a day were not a hundred times more interesting than most people. But usually they just pass, mostly unnoticed, unless they're wildly nice like autumn ones filled with maple leaves and hazy sunlight. Or if they're grimly awful ones, like the ones in a winter blizzard that kills the lost traveler and bunches of cattle. For some reason, we like to see days pass, even though most of us claim we don't want to reach our last one for a long time. We examine each day before us with barely a glance and say, no, this is not the one I've been looking for. 
and wait in a bored sort of way for the next when we are convinced our lives will start for real. Meanwhile, this day is going by perfectly well adjusted as some days are with just the right amounts of sunlight and shade and a light breeze scented with a perfume made from the mixture of fallen apples, corn stubble, dry oak leaves, and the faint odor of last night's meandering skunk. (laughs) Could be outside of IMS. So despite you know, the, the ups and downs, the joys and the sorrows of this retreat. Just take a moment to go inward and stop and just reflect on what do you not need right now? Where are things just fine? That is part of your, the landscape of your experience as well. Where are things content? On one retreat, um, this, this form is, is a practiced form over and over again. And so in, in the individual meeting uh, during this retreat, um, a practitioner came and said on the second day, I discovered this whole world inside of me that I never knew. It's a whole world for us to discover and to be able to hold all of our experience. The freedom of equanimity invites us into the direct and intimate relationship with our experience, regardless of what arises. The awareness to be with, with patience and acceptance non-reactivity, non-attachment, not needing things to be other than the way they are. So we've referred to and you have directly experienced a lot of things in this retreat. You know, there are, there's the, the movement and, and noise in the meditation hall even though it's supposed to be quiet. There are so many sort of rules and guidelines for you to follow and, and then noticing how many people don't follow them and you know, the issues with some of the rooms and the bathrooms, problems with your roommates maybe, people breaking the silence, you breaking the silence, using too many cushions, can't find enough cushions. <laughs> can't find the the interview rooms, there are cell phones going off, people are using cameras, and maybe you haven't even liked what you've heard in the Dharma talks. And in spite of all of that, are there moments of freedom? Is there a calm in the eye of your storm, whatever it is? Is there a still point that you can just observe? 
What are the conditions of your freedom? What are the prerequisites? Is it to get rid of the noise, to get rid of the people that aren't following whatever, or for you to leave? Who would you be without these prerequisites? Because there are none. Our concept of freedom is skewed by our culture. Freedom is not doing whatever we want or getting whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want, with whom we ever want we want. That is just addiction. The pleasant experience and the pushing away of unpleasant experience. And as Gina mentioned last night, I think she mentioned last night, that the Buddha had problems after his enlightenment. He had backaches. He also had migraines because the story is is that in his past life, he uh, was a, a fisherman as a boy and the way that he caught fish was to knock them on the head. And so he got migraines even after his enlightenment as you know, the, the after effects of that. And it, and it was, and he also passed away actually from gastrointestinal problems. But it's not, it wasn't even just his individual suffering that, I mean, his community suffered. Um, there were so many conflicts and difficulties that that's why the monastic code got formed. There was no code in the beginning, but then there was harm that was that 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 occurred and then you know one of the um, guidelines of the vinaya got created and each time something happened another guideline got created he somebody tried to assassinate him three times in his life and his whole family tribe was exterminated in war he had a lot of dukkha And despite whatever trauma that existed for him, there was freedom. In my early practice in, um, in many different meditation centers, the fact is, I'll just be blunt, in all meditation centers that I practiced in in my early practice, um, I didn't see myself at all. You know, I, I was um, one of very few people of color in the room. And I really wanted to change that room so badly. It was painful. I, you know, the whole thought process was, what are the conditions that have to occur? What is it that have to, has to be done? You know, why can't people see this? I spent so much energy wanting, wanting what was, what was um, arising to be different in that moment. Craving for the room to be a certain way. And there was a lot of suffering and there was so much suffering I actually left the room in my first retreat. 
And how much suffering is that, that I couldn't even listen to the Dharma? Sort of suffering on top of suffering. And what this practice has offered to me is over time, and this is what I love about this practice, is that is the constant invitation unconditionally just to come back to the breath, to come back to the phrases of loving kindness, to come back into the room was the ability to practice with anyone under any circumstance, in any center, at any time. And that feeling of relaxation is a moment of freedom for me. And of course, you know, I felt that the cultural conditioning around this whole experience is unfair. And sometimes I still do. I wish that our world were different in some ways. But there's unfairness in the world. And is that a prerequisite to freedom? Does freedom depend on life being fair? Because if it does, we'll be waiting a very long time. So I want to make a distinction between freedom and justice. Dr. Martin Luther King says the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Justice is such a worthy and needed human endeavor, and it always takes longer than we would like. Freedom, on the other hand, does not mean to be in a place where there are no problems, are no difficulties, are no conflicts, is no, imp- no oppression. It means to be in the middle of those things and still have the ability to have a clear mind and an open heart. This means that even when we're dissatisfied, with however the moment it is, can we be satisfied with that dissatisfaction? Can we be okay with both satisfaction and dissatisfaction? Can we ride the waves? Can we notice the preferences without needing to act on them? What did we say earlier this week? Noticing the impulse without needing to act. All of these practices are supportive of each other. And we're now expanding from that personal level of practice, how it impacts our life, to how it may impact us collectively as a world. in the work that needs to be done in this world, we can often feel the urgency of our human condition, the needs of our wounded humanity. Things may seem to be so pressing and so prominent. And to know that this sense of urgency When it arises, it is not the first time it has arisen in humanity. 
It has arisen many, many times. It has arisen in all of our lives because it is a part of our life. This is the first noble truth. This is the truth of suffering. Equanimity is not about waiting for these conditions that cause pain to end. Equanimity is the possibility of freedom in this moment. So that you can do the hard work that's needed in this world with greater ease and more spaciousness. In spite of any adverse conditions, there can be and are moments of freedom. Getting rid of adversity is not a prerequisite for this freedom. Some of you are engaged in the really difficult and hard work of social justice and change. When you are confronted with that difficulty and hardness, that's part of the work, do you yourself become difficult and hard as a person? If so, the situation has changed you rather than you being an instrument of the change that you vision. The practice of equanimity allows you and invites you to be a change agent without losing the vision of who you see yourself to be. Again, equanimity does not ask us to be passive. So Sayada Utpandita, who has been quoted many times in this retreat and has, has taught at this retreat center and is the teacher of, of many of our teachers, said that practicing satipatthana, practicing mindfulness, means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. Mindfulness and equanimity allows us to transform and heal the suffering of the world in a way that doesn't create more suffering. Ajahn Jimnian, who is one of the Thai masters of this past century, says that injustice is part of the world. Err on the side of equanimity first. If we react from the place of injury, suffering, or pain, we continue contributing to keeping the pain open. This practice has a direct impact, not just on your lives, but on the world itself. These are familiar words to most of us. We can stand up before our most violent opponent and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. 
we will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Throw us in jail, we will still love you. Be assured, we will ride you down by our capacity to suffer. One day, we will win our freedom, but we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. From Dr. Martin Luther King, that is so inspirational even today. The amount of space, the landscape that he could hold, that kind of work that he visioned for not just himself, but for generations to come, including ours. Equanimity provides the spaciousness to do the demanding and invaluable endeavor of collective social change. Our collective practice is no different than our individual practice. We cannot change that which we are not aware of. That means collective social change depends upon collective social awareness. And again, this takes time. Transforming a world requires the awareness of communities. Transforming communities needs the awareness of each of us as individuals. And awareness asks us asks us to be aware of change, of the truth of impermanence. Even as we work towards positive benefit in the world, conditions are changing around us all the time. And because of changing conditions, we can't attach to the outcomes of even our best intentions. Any attachment whether it's to positive states of mind and heart, to um, the goals that we have in our best intentions, even to the freedom that's in this room, that attachment leads to suffering. So we learn to just be with it, not hang on. And this invitation is to include the shifting sands of impermanence into your practice and your spiritual path. These people of color retreats are such precious opportunities. I know that each of you feel that deeply. Many of you have come over and over again. They are doors into the Dharma of liberation and kindness. And the invitation is not to be attached to the door. Again, any attachment, even if it's subtle, even if it's to freedom, can lead to suffering. 
And I say this not to bring bad news and not to disappoint you. And I hope that it it doesn't betray your trust in us because I hope that you know how so many people have worked to create these retreats. And I hope that you know how much we love you by offering this form of practice and to also invite you into the possibility that your spiritual life is so much more than just one retreat. So much more than even these doors of this People of Color venue. And when you're ready, when you're ready, explore that expansiveness that infinite capacity of your spiritual journey to include the Dharma anywhere with anyone at any time. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. I hope you know that you have come so far in this practice just by being here. Just allowing this organic container to hold all of your experience for all of these days. You have practiced so deeply because if you didn't, you would have left. You wouldn't be here. This is a voluntary experience, if you can believe it. You have done it. You have contained all of that ex- those experiences using equanimity. So I just want to end this evening with a story It's not a story, it's um, about a woman whose um, title is, um, she's often called the Lady of No Fear. And she's uh, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. And many of you know her story and how she was released by the Burmese junta uh, in November of last year. Um, And for those of you who aren't as familiar with the details, she was under different forms of incarceration for 15 out of 21 years as a political prisoner. Her most recent house arrest lasted seven years. And she was originally the, um, the spouse of an academic researcher in Britain, in Britain with two kids, and in 1988, she went back to Burma to visit her mother, who was ailing, and got, got involved in the justice movement, in the freedom movement, the democratic freedom movement in, in that country, using what she knew of her Buddhist values and, and what she knew of, of Gandhi's life. Part of her travails was um, 
not being able to see her husband before he died of prostate cancer. He died in 1999. The last time they saw each other was 1995. Until this recent release, she hadn't seen her children after the ages of 11 and 15. So this is a description of of her after she was released. The regime has ignored her repeated offers for national reconciliation dialogue. Since releasing her, the junta has dealt with Suchi by acting as if she doesn't exist, expunging mentions of her from the local press and hoping that, despite her busy schedule and the huge crowds that gather wherever she goes, somehow she will dwindle into irrelevance. And her response to this? I wish I could have tea with them every Saturday. Just a friendly tea. Suchi says of the generals. And then, so then she was asked, and what if they turned down a nice cup of tea? Well, we could always try coffee. (laughs) There is another word that has the feeling of equanimity to me, and that is grace. To be able to hold all of her experience and to be able to come up with that response. For now she is out, but there is little doubt that if the junta sees her in any realistic challenge to its authority, she will be sent to jail again on whatever spurious charge the military can concoct. She says, I want to do as much as I can while I'm free. And I don't want to tire myself out. We never know how much time we have. This balance, this equanimity, this holding both the vision and also our own limitations. It is possible to hold the broadest, most expansive vision we have in the world and work towards it without losing sight of who we are. This is the direct connection between what you're doing in this retreat and how we can be in the world. Many blessings on this great journey that we all share. And many thanks for your companionship along this path. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.